Good to be here with you all. Let's see your faces. Oh yeah. I lead a Wednesday night program here at Common Ground. And um, so we usually start about a couple hours later than you all do. So uh, as I've done in the past, I've invited Common Grounders to join the CIM Sears and made it a joint, joint adventure. So um, it's good to, it, it was so fun last time. We thought, I thought, well, why not do it again? <laughs> so I'm curious if anybody is here for the first time to this Wednesday night group, either at Common Ground or CIMC. And if you are, if you'd like to unmute yourself and say hello. I'm wondering if anybody, um, it's been such nice, nice to have, you know, a lot of cross pollination happening with uh, our sibling organizations here, CIMC and Common Ground um, over the past three years. It's been really fun for me to get to know some of you. And I know fun for you to get to know each other um, through Zoom land and um, online retreats and such. And some of you have even been out here and I know that some of Common Grounders have been out there. So I'm wondering if there's anybody in the room that just wants to say hey to each other. If you haven't, last time there was a few people that were thrilled to do that. So if you want to just go ahead and unmute. All right then, <laughs> very last invitation before I jump in and offer some Dharma here. If you wanna just uh, turn on your camera for a second, you don't have to, but if you do, and just wanna look around and wave and say hello, even if you don't turn on your camera, you just wanna take in the names and say hello, just appreciate being in community together. Uh, that's nice, yeah, smile, remind each other that you're friendly and happy enough to be here together. Oh, it's good to see everybody. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so on these Wednesday night uh, at Common Ground, we've been working way, our way through a, a little small but mighty book called The Noble Eightfold Path, Way to the End of Suffering by Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's a, if you haven't read it, it's just a great um, resource for any, anybody who uh, is on the path new or been on the path for years. It's just a really wonderful resource. It's very, Bhikkhu Bodhi makes every word count. So <laughs> you'll get a lot, you'll get a lot there. And so I thought we, I would share a little bit about uh, my reflections on the path, the Noble Eightfold Path, and then dig into wise intention a little bit. And if you're new to hearing me share the Dharma, my uh, way of coming to the Dharma is more like this than like this. So I'll meander around and probably come back to things. And, you know, that's just, that's just the way things happen for me. And uh, as always, I, I love it to be a back and forth. So I'll speak for a little while and then I'll, um, Hopefully you'll you'll jump into and it'll be more of a conversation than a, a one way. Oh, so the Noble Eightfold Path, it's really, if you wanna know about Buddhist practice, you know, all the teachings are included here. So this is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths and Really, the Four Noble Truths come out of this inquiry of the Buddhists, the central inquiry, which is a desire to understand suffering. Maybe desire is not the right, right word, but a, a deep, um, heartfelt interest in understanding suffering and understanding really deeply, you know, what, what is suffering and what leads to freedom. And as it is with all of us in our humanness, we tend to think of some suffering as something that's externally created, right? That if only fill in the blanks were to behave, I'd be happy, right? My partner, my pet, the world, my job, if only things were the way I wanted them to be, then I'd be happy. But the Buddha was like, well, is this true? Because, you know, things are pretty great. <laughs> before he set up on this really deep inquiry. 
And is, is this true? You know, if things are perfect, if things are ideal, the way we want them to be, will I be happy? And as we've seen over and over, probably we realize, well, that's not always true. And in fact, you know, when things aren't great, then if we're dependent on external forces to make us happy, then when things aren't the way we want them to be, then it's really difficult. And so for many of us, what has brought us to the path is reckoning with that. Like, what, what do we do now, right? Given the conditions of my life as they are, given this um, unmovable obstacle or this unrelenting challenge, you know, and even, you know, something like our own mortality or illness or loss, it can bring us really to our cushion. And this is not unique to us. We can remember that since the beginning of time, spiritual seekers have been dropping to their knees to understand something about this inquiry. And so it's a really noble and in some ways it's, it, it feels heartening to me to think it's really ordinary too. It's a noble thing to do. And it's very human for human beings to go, what now? Right. And so when the Buddha said, what now, and really watched his mind to see how deeply he could understand how deeply he can move into this inquiry, what is suffering and the end of suffering, then what came to him is this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Right? And although the Four Noble Truths are layered with teachings in the most simple form, it's this, you know, simply laid out, what is suffering? How do we understand it? And what's, and what's the root to the end of suffering? Right. So the first noble truth is suffering exists. It's just a very pragmatic statement, which again, I appreciate because it's like not special in some way. It's just very ordinary. Like there's no sense in trying to get away from the seasons, right? There's no sense in trying to get away from this human tendency to suffer. And what we can do is to try to understand it instead of trying to avoid it or jump over it in some way, we can try to understand it. So that's embedded in the first noble truth. What is suffering? So there is suffering and suffering can be understood. And then in the second noble truth, the Buddha said, and there's also a cause, right? A cause that we can know, we can get close to. And that cause is clinging, right? The heart that wants things to be this way, the heart that is in contention with life, that's the heart that suffers, right? So it's not that we can't be engaged in the world or in our lives. It's not that we can't impact change or be agents of change. That's all good and useful and actually makes us remember that we have some agency to create the life that we want. It doesn't always mean that we'll get what we want, but it means that we can participate, right? But it also means that uh, we have to be really honest with ourselves. And the heart clings to, oh, I've been so interested in this over the summer and just trying to be as honest with myself as I possibly can be. And that's hard enough, but whew, human beings, we are good at clinging to anything and everything, right? Views, ideas, you know, body sensations, just everything, really everything. And it's so elusive, this activity of clinging that it's, it's invisible, at least in my experience, this is definitely the way it seems, it's invisible to us a lot of the time. So there is suffering, the cause of suffering is clinging, the mind that wants or doesn't want anything, right? And there is a way out, right? We, we aren't, uh, we don't have to suffer forever. We don't have to just accept that suffering is like this and there's no way around it, right? We don't want to try to jump over it or think that somehow we can avoid suffering, but we do want to understand what supports what's the part, heart what supports the heart's freedom in the face of experience, right? Does the experience itself have to go away in order for me to feel free and be be free? Right? Is that true? Right? And we can learn this experientially because that's how the that's how it works. This is what the path is, is about. It's not about 
listening to a teacher, me or anybody else say, this is the way it is, even the Buddha, right? The Buddha was like, go, go see, go check it out, go look, right? Notice, does, do you have to get the piece of chocolate? Do you have to gratify that want in order to be happy, right? Do you have to avoid the piece of chocolate in order to be happy, right? It's another good question that we get to check out. And so in the fourth noble truth, the Buddha said, well, if you really want to understand this, if you want to know suffering and the end of suffering, if you want to learn how to be free, then this is the way right here. And he laid out these eight path factors. And what's beautiful about the noble eightfold path is that nothing is left out. All the ways we can experience our humanness, our connection, any way that we want to understand the mind, it's all included in the path, right? Everything, the whole, and all of the teachings are included here. So they're both simple and pragmatic and very deep and layered. <clears throat> and each of the path factors um, begin with this word sama, which is often translated as wise, sometimes right. And sometimes we can get hung up on this word right, but it's not, it, it has a, uh, perhaps maybe the word right isn't the best for all of us. And we can, we can choose because words have different resonances. But really the word wise or right, this word sama is pointing to something that's deeper than what a word might tell us. Right. This wisdom is it, it really feels like it's like every path factor includes all the other path factors. The word right, we can say complete or aligned, something like this. Devoted even feels good to me. That word is like devoted to understanding the depth of the Dhamma as it expresses itself through this one path factor that includes all the other teachings. Right. Because you can't really tug on any one without getting all the others too. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that, but the path begins with wise view, right? Path begins and ends actually with wise view. So we need a little bit of wisdom to begin our journey, right? Some kind of instinct or intuition that's like, I wonder if there's a better way, right? I wonder if there's a way for life to become a little more tolerable. Because when, when life, you know, and this is, these moments happen for all of us, especially in the, over the past three years, I, I would guess for everybody that we've probably all had moments of feeling like, wow, can it get worse, right? Things are, feel hard right now. And when there's no wisdom to support the connection with life as it is, life can feel un, unbearable. And so the best strategy for connecting with life, when we, when we make this move towards to be intimate with the way things are, we need, we need all the help we can get, right? So wisdom is, is always the best support of that because it helps, us, it helps us have a context or frame for what we're actually connecting with. Otherwise, our ordinary minds, you know, we don't, we don't see it that deeply. We just go like, oh, this is unpleasant. I need to get away from it. Or this is pleasant. Maybe let me hold on as long as I can, because I don't know, you know, when things are going to be this easy again, right? But with wisdom, then we learn like, oh, we don't have to do this thing that human beings do. This is the predicament that human beings are in, right? We're just relentlessly and endlessly moving towards what's pleasant and trying to get away from unpleasantness. And we're ignoring, you know, everything that's unfamiliar to us, right? So then we, we get into these uh, traps and these little pockets where we're spinning in our own experience and we can't, we don't know how to relate to each other, especially when our experience is different, right? And then hate just grows and our world becomes as messy as it is. And so the way to uh, support us in and learning how to be a little more skillful, be a lot more skillful in our lives and be able to be with things that aren't movable. You know, like one of the, oh no, I can't remember which, which teacher said that when you're, it might've been Bhikkhu Bodhi actually, I'm not, I'm not really sure though, 
when you're from the time we're born, we're meandering towards our death. Right? It's like the from the time we're born, we're already aging. And we don't notice this until sometimes until we do. And that can be at any age, but often we take our own health and well-being when it's good for granted. And so just as an example, right, learning to be with life as it is, life on life's terms, to accept the body on the body's terms, to know that we can do our best to take care of the body, but it's not perfect, right? We don't have perfect control. We don't have a perfect say over how things go, right? That kind of wisdom that knows, oh, the body is just nature and that all things are impermanent and that life is always in motion, even though we might think of life in any moment as a uh, fixed or a stagnant experience. It's just that we're not seeing something clearly in those moments. So when wisdom joins us in that immediate, intimate experience, then life becomes like, okay, I, it's, it's just a big help, right? Like what else do we have to rely on except that, except the deepest wisdom? And so the path begins with wisdom. It starts us off, right? We have a little inner wisdom, even if it's just a bit that gets us started. And it's good for us to notice that, you know, our own innate inner wisdom that supports us along the way. Often, it's definitely been my experience that I miss that. You know, I'm always looking for the places I need to grow or where my unfinished business is, and I don't notice when the mind is wise or loving or right, patient. Nod your head if you're with me. Has this ever happened to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. I'm not alone. Oof. Yeah. So it's, it's worth it for us to really notice like when the mind, like when the mind is knowing something, right. And when it's knowing something that's worth knowing, right. When, when the Buddhist teachings are, are, or when our deepest values are making themselves known to us, it's good to like, just take a moment and lean in there. Oh yeah. Look at that. This heart knows how to be good. Right? This heart wants to be happy. This heart wants to be decent. This heart wants to be in wise relationship with other beings. Like that's that's beautiful. And it's good to notice that. And so the, the path factors, wise view is the first. And wise view is like this, uh, the wisest ways that can frame our... Uh, frame our ways of engaging our life, right? The way that our, our minds and their, the views and beliefs are often um, very subtle experiences that drive how we relate to everything. And again, views and beliefs are hard to notice, but they can be, and we can also train because of what we learn about the mind's nimbleness and the brain's nimbleness as a structure, as a part of our body to be to be trained so everything is uh is pliable in this way so whatever kinds of views we connect with we can accept those as they are because we can see them as nature and we can also train in um in learning how to have a broad the broadest deepest view possible to support us through life like this is like everything is in motion that understanding is there. So wise view leads to an understanding of wise intention. So we've got the first two path factors are wisdom oriented, wise view and wise intention. And then wise view supports wise intention and wise the, the path factor ahead of it supports the path factor beneath it always, right? So wise intention then supports these three path factors that are about relating ethics, which is good to remember because sometimes Buddhists, we really like our sitting practice, right? We, and we want to remember that uh, the relational aspects of, of the path are, there's three of them, three out of eight. So that's a lot. So it's good for us to remember that, right? So wise intention then supports wise speech and wise action and wise livelihood. 
And then when our ethics, when our the way that we're living our life, the way we talk and move and live is in um, alignment with the deepest truths, in alignment with um, harmony, harmonizing, you know, sometimes the word harmony doesn't feel quite right because it implies something like we just have to be in Minnesota. We call it Minnesota nice, right? We're just easygoing about everything when not everything feels that easygoing, right? Sometimes it means we have to speak truth to power. And sometimes it means we have, means we have to have hard conversations when we're talking and engaging. But this, when our ethics, when our way of living is in alignment with deep truth and our uh, interest in harmonizing for the good of all beings, right? Then it makes it a lot easier to do our sitting practice and to, to uh, for the mind to settle and be still. And then we get to the third part of the Eightfold Path and that's these three factors of wise effort, wise mindfulness and wise concentration. So the effort that we make in order to be stable, the effort that we make in order to help the mind settle down, you know, effort is always in service of mindfulness. And it makes it easier when we're not flooded with uh, experiences, when we're not thinking about all the things that we did that were messed up, right? So when our ethics are in a good place, aligned with our deepest values, then the mind can go like, oh yeah, I'm not sitting here you know, worrying about needing to repair this or something like that. I can feel like I did my best today. I've been, I've been living in a good way. So just a little overview of the past for, for anybody that is useful to, it's useful to, and it's all, always useful to me too, to, to remember like, oh yeah, this is, this is important here. And in some ways, so digging into wise intention or wise thought is another way to describe it. In some ways, digging into wise intention is just about that, remembering that how we live or what shapes the way we live and what's important to us is good to remember, right? Because our intentions are, our intentions precede every thought every word, every action. And again, you know, as with wise view, some of our views and beliefs, they can be very subtle and invisible to us. So can our intentions. And it's good to, you know, alongside this, alongside this willingness to um, understand that everything is just nature. You know, everything is a result of every experience we can know as a result of causes and conditions. Everything is in motion. These are deep truths. You now, everything is nature. Everything is a result of causes and conditions. Helps us understand that everything is, nothing is personal, right? But that doesn't mean we don't take responsibility for the experiences that we have. It doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves. It doesn't mean that we don't care of, take care of our anger or our sadness, right? We have to participate skillfully. That's what we're called to do. And so it's good to remember that we have some agency. So alongside holding this view in mind, this wisdom in mind, like ah, everything's nature. It's a result every moment is a result of causes and conditions that have given rise to it. It couldn't be anything other than this. It doesn't mean that we get a pass and we can opt out of life. It means that we do get to participate and we have some agency to create the kind of world that we want to live in, right? Not, it doesn't mean that everything is going to go our way. It just means that we can wholeheartedly participate and we can because it's the right thing to do or because we we do have some say, right? When we choose to be kind to ourselves, it feels differently than when we choose to beat ourselves up, right? When we choose to bring intentionality into our relationships, that has an impact on our relationships. When we choose to be absent or aloof in our relationships, that also has an impact, right? So this is the kind of agency we get to see this play out in real time. So there are three kinds of wise intention the Buddha talked about. The intention of renunciation, 
the intention of goodwill and the intention of harmlessness, right? And they correspond to three kinds of wise intention. And the intention of renunciation counters the intention of sensual desire, right? Which one of my, my teachers, Mark Dunberg, who has been here, I think many times before and may be on his way soon uh, in the next month or so, I think, to give a talk at CIMC. But he, he often says that desire is the animating force of life, right? It's what makes us feel alive. It's in the, it's in the soup of how we do business and daily life all the time. So again, it's not something that we need to get away from, but we just want to understand desire and how it moves and where we have some say, right? And we often have some say when we relate to sensual desire with wisdom. Like, okay, I'm gonna this, I'm gonna really enjoy this food because it's one of the pleasures of life. And I'm gonna appreciate deeply where it came from. Then I have the resources to eat this food right now. And I'm gonna understand that eating good food isn't a given. It's a privilege and that it's gonna end, right? I don't have to keep eating this chocolate because I just want it, right? And it actually doesn't help me. It doesn't help, it doesn't support the kind of life that I want to live, right? Just like gratifying desire with this diluted idea that if I gratify this desire, somehow desire is gonna go away. It just feeds it and we learn this in action. So wise intention, the intention to live simply, right? And to, to really live simply, this is what uh, the intention of renunciation is all about for me. It's not so much about, um, sometimes renunciation can feel kind of like a drag, but for me, it's like, oh, just living in a way where the heart can be intentional, where the heart can care and can reflect on what's going on here, right? And not to be too fast or too bombarded with experience or stimuli to not care. And I notice this when my life gets busy, right? Or too busy, that the heart really loses its capacity to care. I was taking a walk today, case in point, with my dog, something I do every day. And I noticed that I was just trying to get to the end of the walk. So I'm, it's a beautiful thing to be teaching about wise intention and noticing like, oh, I'm not really connected with the earth right now. I'm not connected with being in relationship with other humans. I'm not connected to this experience and I'm sharing with my four-legged best friend, right? I'm just not, the heart wasn't really in tune with any of that. And I wasn't in tune with the intentions that led me to do that activity. This So the heart wasn't able to be simple and just connected with, with being right there with that. So the act of and the intention of renunciation is this heart's willingness to be right with what we're, we are, where we are, what we're doing, what we're experiencing, the value to keep in mind the power of mindfulness. Right? And so the intention, the second wise intention is the intention of goodwill. And this is like just simple kindness, right? Wise, a wise intention is the intention to be kind. And this counters the intention to be unkind, or this counters the intention to be hateful or ill will, the intentions behind ill will. And this again, doesn't mean that ill will, if we, if we have the intention to be good and kind, it doesn't mean that we'll never experience the intention to be Ill, to have ill will, right? It doesn't, doesn't mean that. One of the bravest and most courageous things we can do is to actually admit to ourselves our humanness. I was just uh, reflecting on this, you know, so it's so hard to admit to myself what is true for all of us, that the heart is not always kind, right? And at, in moments, there are despicable thoughts that flow through this mind and impulses and intentions that arise. And if I'm not careful, if I don't, if I'm, my heart is not intentional and able to be with right is, what right, what is, then 
I'll miss those and I'll just act them out because that's what human beings do, right? These, the whole path is for deluded beings. That's us. The path is not meant for enlightened beings. <laughs> so we have to admit to ourselves when our path isn't, where our path isn't complete so that we can learn to orient to something that's going to be supportive for us. So acknowledging to ourselves and often to other beings like, oh yeah, this heart is messy, right? This heart sometimes doesn't care. This heart sometimes gets swept away by experience and, you know, crazed with greedy intentions and doesn't remember to think about other people. And, you know, I notice this with my partner. Sometimes it's painful to admit like, oh, I just wanted to be right in that moment. And that's why I said that dumb thing, right? That's so hard, but that's, it's really true. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I just really wanted to be right. And I wasn't thinking about you. And this kind of sincerity, at least to ourselves, sometimes to other beings in that case, but you know, we have to use our good discernment on that one. That kind of sincerity can be really attractive, right? If you know people in your life who are just sincere, it's, it's actually settling for other people, right? It makes us trustworthy. Like when we can admit, oh, my intentions were not pure in that moment, right? I, I'm sorry. I didn't actually, I wasn't actually tracking what's moving in my heart, right? And I said or did something that was hurtful. That's actually a kind of skill that is supportive in community because it makes us trustworthy to other people. Because the things that we think are invisible to other people aren't <laughs> most of the time. Even if I didn't say to my partner, you know, I just wanted to be right. She probably knew <laughs> because she knows me quite well, right? So when we are willing to say, own our own experience, then it can really make us more trustworthy to other people too. So the intention of renunciation, one kind of wise intention, the intention of goodwill, second kind of wise intention, and the third kind, the intention of harmlessness, counters the intention to be harmful. And this intention, uh, harmless intentions, really I think of as just wanting to be a decent human being. And it's not always that way, is it? But it's good to remember like each day and sometimes throughout the days, I'll just remember that I care about, I care about keeping the precepts. And I also care that they're complex and not straightforward. And so I don't want to take them as rules, but just to live a life of harmlessness, right? And sometimes that means being brave and um, yeah, it was just, I work in a school part-time and there's this kind of tricky situation that I'm help, helping mediate in, in a building. And it's, I have to be the bearer of bad news. You know, there are parties and they don't agree. And sometimes I have to say like this, you know, this, the school is going to take this stand right now. And that makes some people really unhappy, right? So I've really been practicing in these moments to, to uh, remember my ethics, my intentions to not cause harm. And sometimes just that, even though I have to deliver bad news, it makes me be more careful about how I deliver that bad news, right? Even though the impact is not always pleasant for anybody, right? The impact sometimes is that the words, the decisions that were made are hurtful. But my intention to be in relationship, to stay connected, to be there for the repair, to be there for the conversation, you know, is a part of that deep ethic to not cause harm. Right. So it doesn't mean that life is always straightforward. 
but keeping that in mind, I have an intention not to cause harm, then helps me even in situations where it's not, it's not always that clean, right? Now, if I just said keeping the precepts is about not killing people, well, that's not that hard, right? I can keep that precept every day. It's not that hard most of the time. I can keep that precept pretty easily every day. But it's deeper than that. And are the ways in which our ethics govern our lives is always more complex, right? So just to keep that renewing value at the top of mind can be very skillful way to engage our lives. Our intentions are the link between um, our mental activity and our engagement in the world, right? Because in every moment of conscious, every moment of consciousness comes with an intention. So behind every thought, even, you know, every moment of our lives, you know, there is an intention that's often just beneath the surface. We don't notice it that often, but our intentions shape everything that we do and all the ways that we engage and live relationally. So I remember many years ago practicing on a retreat and there was an, this was a deep insight and it came like, oh my God, everything matters all the time. That's what the, so it's not this kind of a trip that we want to, uh, that we want it to, you know, cause us to stand still and brace ourselves. It's not like that, but it's just to remember that, oh yeah, you know, it really does matter. And so this, the way that we can renew our investment and our values it can be a beautiful thing. I'll read a little bit from BQ Bodhi here. On the one side, actions always point back to the thoughts from which they sprung. Thought is the forerunner of action, directing body and speech, stirring them into activity, using them as, as instruments for expressing its aims and ideals. These aims and, ideal, and, and ideals, our intentions in turn, point back a further step to the prevailing views, right? Wise intention always points back to the view that supported it, right? Either this view, a wise and skillful view or an unwise and unskillful view. And these intentions or impulses, like I said, can be really, can be elusive to us, but we can also learn to notice them. We can also learn to get, to come in contact with them, right? And our sitting practice is a wonderful place to just start to get like a gross understanding of intentions. And so raise your hand if you've ever been fidgety during a sit. That's right. <laughs> Fidgety. Yeah. And what's happening there is there's like an impulse to move, right? They're sitting still and there's this impulse to move. And we're wrestling with that. Do I move or do I not? I want to be still. So there's like, and sometimes there's emotion that's there, like, oh, I feel like a bad meditator if I move, or I'm in this room with everybody and it'll be disruptive if I move, or I'm supposed to be better than this. I'm supposed to just sit here, or I am better than this. I know how to just sit here, right? There's a lot going on beneath the surface there that our intentions, the impulse just to move, right? The intention to move can open us up to. So we can start to see intentions like this, right? Or notice when we're, when we're heightened in some way, like there's a lot of emotion or we're having a lively conversation and the strong, when we get activated by something or hurt by something, that strong impulse to say something, right? 
So sometimes it can be really useful just to restrain the response for a moment, just to feel into that impulse, to feel into that intention. It's there and it's telling us something, right? So we want to listen to that intention to see, is this a wise intention, skillful? Is it going to support my deepest values? Or is this an unwise and unskillful? Is it going to lead me in the direction of more suffering, right? Because we know that as soon as we say that, if we're there, we're going we're gonna to feel the residue of it, right? So that's our second teacher. If we miss it, then we're going to feel the residue of it. So catching the intentions as soon as we can can be useful. It's not going to happen all the time, of course. So there, there's an intention before every step we take, before every word we utter, right? So we're not going to catch all of our intentions, but we can start to see how our intentions move us through our day, move us through our life. It's also said that, you know, it's, it's worth it for us to cultivate wise and skillful intentions because it's said that we can't have an unwise and a wise intention at the very same time, right? So an intention to do harm can't live next to an intention to be kind. So if we're cultivating wise and skillful intentions, like to be simple and connected, to be wise, to be skillful, right? Any, any kind of wise intention, if we're cultivating this, then we can really get curious about how that helps us move through life in ways that are aligned with the person we want to be, right? So it can be a good question to ask, is this when we are noticing uh, that our intentions aren't what we want them to be, we can ask, is this, is this motivating force here the best and only force to be used in this moment? Sometimes the energy, sometimes I work with children and teenagers and they're, you know, kids. And so sometimes I'll think, well, if I don't raise my voice here, they're never going to attend to me. And I question that, right? Do I need to have a strong voice in that moment? Is that intention out of compassion for children? Or is it out of an intention to control? And I have to be the adult in the room, no doubt. But bringing some awareness to that moment is really, can be really useful, can really illuminate something. Like, and sometimes I can hold, I can restrain the response just for a breath to see if I can discern what's actually moving the heart right there and then make a choice about how I live. Buddhism can sometimes get a bad rap, right? Um, sometimes we can think that we're just sitting around cultivating wise intentions and not doing anything. But wise intention is always supports action and engagement. Hopefully that's been really clear. So how we participate is shaped by our, the intentions that support our participation, right? We don't get off the hook for participating. We're participating in every moment of our lives. Even if we're silent, it's a choice to participate. Our silence is seated by an intention, right? So when we choose to pull back, when we choose to push in, these are all moments that intentions are cultivated, right? That, and they're bearing some fruit. It's either supporting this beneficial karmic fruit, planting seeds of goodness in our lives and in the world, or planting seeds that aren't beneficial, aren't supportive, aren't skillful in the world, right? It could be the very same action, the action to be silent or the action to speak, right? It can be the very same action, but the intentions can be either wise or unwise, right? There are moments when speaking is motivated by greed, right? Wanting to be the center of attention or wanting to be the wise one in the room or all kinds of other things. And it can be moments when speaking is like motivated by deep care and concern for a community right? Or wanting to be a stabilizing force in the room, right? Or leaning into a pattern that doesn't feel that healthy, 
like, oh, I never speak, right? So just being silent would have just maybe uh, reinforced that invisibility. But choosing to speak even when my voice shakes, for example, might be a way of undermining that deep pattern of like, oh yeah, look at this, I'm participating. I'm okay, I'm just a normal human being like everybody else. So this, the same action, the intentions that inform the action can vary, even though the action from the outside looks exactly the same, right? So we can notice like in a room full of people sitting quietly with their eyes closed and not fidgeting doesn't mean <laughs> that everybody's perfectly equanimous, right? Because the intentions are always changing. And we can know too that as we live our lives as deluded human beings, our most of the time our intentions are going to be mixed, right? So we can accept that like, oh, sometimes this heart has uh, messy intentions that aren't good for me or other people. And sometimes those intentions live right next to some beautiful intentions, like to lean, like a beautiful intention to really connect with that and be honest and sincere. And so it's good to remember that, you know, we have, we have the choice to cultivate wise and skillful intentions so that we, we can choose what we act on, right? When we notice that an intention is unwise, then we choose some restraint. And when we notice that our own, our heart, the heart's beauty is shining through, then we, we choose to share that, right? And, and lean in and feel it. Let the heart really soak it up. So this is, it's really, you know, I, I have an affinity for daily life practice. Uh, and if you've practice with me at common ground, I, I like to say a lot, because this is really, it's really true for me that and I remind myself this every day. Sweetie, if you're only, if your intentions to practice are limited to the cushion or to retreats, you're really limiting uh, the exposure to Dhamma. But if life is Dhamma, right, and my aim is to really be awake in my life, then I'm gonna, I care about using every moment of my life for this, for the practice of waking up, right? To see what I don't see, to clarify my good intentions, to choose to be a wise and skillful being. And so that means when I'm using the bathroom or when I'm cooking dinner, or when I'm taking out the trash, right? When I'm doing really ordinary things like blowing my nose <laughs> or walking around, taking a walk in the neighborhood or doing some cleaning here at Common Ground. It means these are moments of practice too. So the question, you know, wise intention practicing, wise intention is really like asking the question, can our ordinary experiences be inspired by our deepest intentions? And just like I discovered on a walk today, well, I had lost, I had lost um, connection with my deepest intentions. I was just following some transactional agreement like my dog needs a walk I do I do that then we go home right but it's a it's there's always an opportunity to reset so much of the time we can forget about our values but then we can always practice resetting they never they never go this they're not like goals that we either succeed at or fail at intentions are like renewing always renewing right always about resetting. And it's also practicing wise intention is also not about repressing desire or aversion. It's not about somehow denying that this body is a human body with human urges, sexual urges, sensual urges, right? Innate and um, built in systems for taking care of ourselves, right? The heart that is shocked or surprised or gets afraid, you know, these nervous system responses are, are really important, right? They help us take care of ourselves. So it's not about overriding that or somehow denying any of that that's going on there. It's just, it's about leaning into our humanness, being really honest and really sincere so that we can get a little bit closer to living the life that we want to live, right? Because even when we meet, you know, expressions of ill will, 
with kind mindfulness, it's wholesome, right? That mindfulness is, is a wholesome expression of the heart that cares. So there's no, you know, we're always kind of reorienting ourselves on the path in this way. Like we notice something that's not skillful, right? That's not wholesome. That's not beneficial. And we turn towards it, connect with it and do so with a heart that understands something that this isn't nature, but also is willing to come face to face with life. And that's a beautiful thing. So again, there's a beautiful intention that supports that movement towards life as it is, right? Our beautiful intentions are always supporting a movement towards, right? Our beautiful intentions also support a kind of movement away sometimes. Like when we, when we go, oh, the heart is being flooded or overwhelmed right now. What can I do to take care of this? So that movement away can be the heart expressing its, its, expressing its goodness, its kindness right there in the moment too. So just taking a moment to like really let that sink in. And it's noble to set off on this training, right? It's imp- it feels impossible in some moments to get it right. And that's good. It's a noble adventure. The best we can do is just try to be sincere with it. All right. So I think I will really stop now. And um, well, first, let me just say thanks for your kind attention. Thanks for listening to the Dhamma tonight. All right, friends, it's really great to be here. It's good to see you again and some of you for the first time. And I know they're common grounders in the room because I see your names, your faces. So hopefully I'll see you all next week. And then um, everybody else down the road. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.